We would like to acknowledge the terrible people, the traditional owners of the land on which we record Extra Virgin Podcast. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Love Extra Virgin Podcast? You can support this show and help keep us ad-free through the coffee supporter feature. It's just like buying us a cup of coffee. It's totally up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the coffee link in the show description to support us now. Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hi, Natasha. Hey, Sam. You know, I'm very excited for this episode because we're going to talk, in part at least, about one of my favourite things, Italian food. No, it's my favourite food and it's my favourite country as well. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we might have to just arm wrestle about that later. (laughs) But that's not all. We're having this chat with one of Australia's most respected and awarded cooks and restaurateurs and not only discussing Italy but finding out about the environment and community that makes up one of Australia's most important food producing regions. That's right. Our guest is Italian-born Stefano Lupieri, who came to Australia in 1974 and has been successfully melding his Italian heritage with the produce of the Murray-Darling Basin in regional Victoria for the last 30 years. Welcome, Stefano, and thank you for being our guest on Extra Virgin Podcast. Hello. Are you well? Yes. You're not fighting over all things (laughs) Italian, you do? Well, we are actually, and I suspect we'll have to go out for a bowl of pasta or something after this this interview. (laughs) I imagine we'll be hungry by the Mm. end. (laughs) Stefano, you come from a country that's very close to our hearts, as we've said, and having travelled extensively in Italy, I know that the food is extremely regional. Can you explain why that is? And also, can you tell us a little bit about where your family is from in Italy and what it's most famous for? Let's tackle the first part. Italy is blessed by lots of microclimates and very different climates because it's a long peninsula. It begins with the crown of mountains to the north, very high peaks. The Dolomites are gorgeous. So that gives you a particular type of gastronomy. Then you descend through various microclimates all the way down to Sicily, which is almost kissing Africa. So there you get an entirely different set of conditions. And as I said, and every variation in between, plus being surrounded by seas, it's governed by winds. And it's those winds that I think combined with the land mass create conditions for beautiful and unusual things. It's a country of citrus, for instance, not that people think about it very often. It's a country of grapes. It's a country that produces the most remarkable cheeses. So it's a combination of things. My family is from the north, from a town called Treviso, which is about 20 k's north of Venice on the flat land there. Although the province extends to the north, it's kind of lopsided. It sort of favours the north rather than the south. And it extends towards the hills where the famous Prosecco is from. In fact, the home of Prosecco is a town called Valdobbiadene, which was made a UNESCO site as recently as last year. And it's absolutely gorgeous. So 
that's one characteristic of the province of, of Treviso where I come from. I suppose the other one that makes it a little bit special is the famous radicchio rosso di Treviso. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are various forms of radicchio. There's the, the one that we can buy here, a little bit bitter. But this one that we are famous for is longer, very red and very crunchy. My written about it because my family had a bit of a finger back in the 19th century in the development of this particular veggie, which is very versatile and did help to provide nutrients and vitamins during the cold winter months. And of course, Italy wasn't unified until quite late in history. Of course, as a unified nation, it's only 160 years old, thereabout. And since the fall of the Roman Empire, there's been a fragmented area which has been visited upon by every tribe and every nation of Europe. And so its fragmentations also led to specific language groups. And obviously, combined with the aforementioned climate, I think that that gave origin to different distinct food. But overriding that, Italy has had a peasantry. And I think the peasantry was starving throughout the centuries. Mm-hmm. And it's out of starvation that comes ingenuity and perhaps even a, a gastronomy of cucina povera, making do with simple basic ingredients, some of them foraged, some of them fished, some of them sort of raised on the side. If you had to grow food, it usually went to the landlord. The peasant had to carve out a little orchard, a little space for him or herself. Uh, If you were to look at the history of food from a class perspective, it's tragic. Mm. It brings tears to your eyes. But the upside, I guess, is this immense variation. Italians make every manner of bread and biscuits, for instance. That has been part of tradition. And, uh, you know, ciabatta, focaccia, and this and that. And every village has a particular biscuit or a cake for a particular celebration. In November, in my neck of the wood, you get really hard biscuits in conjunction with, as just an example, right? In conjunction with the festivities for the dead, the biscotti are called ossi di morto, mm-hmm. <laughs> bones of the dead. <laughs> They're so tough. <laughs> you also got, the, with the peasantry, you had the religion. And religion means festivities. You have not only Christmas and the Easter, but you have carnival, which precedes Lent, and then every feast day. And on a feast day, the village would have a, a procession, and processions are preceded and followed by particular types of food and sweets. And it goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the tapestry is very, very rich. And finally, you've got influences too, because on one side we border with Slovenia, on one side with Austria, on the other side with France. The south was influenced by Africa and the Arab rule of Sicily in particular for a couple of hundred years. I'm repeating myself now, but whether religion, peasantry, influences, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a concertina. The more you open it, the bigger it gets. <laughs> That's um, fascinating. Hard to reduce to one thing. 
Do you have a theory about why some dishes from Italy have been adopted just so broadly around the world, let's say bolognese, while others maybe are pizza? pizza. Yes, pizza's a good one. And yet there are other dishes that they're not adopted so widely. Well, that's a question that I ponder in my head all the time. And I think that the non-Italian palate, well, now it's very hard to make generalization, but it seems to me that the non-Italian palate is fairly, how do I say this without sounding pretentious? <laughs> it seems a little bit limited. There seems to be categories that appeals and others that don't. Mm. For instance, obviously, a tomato base always seems to appeal. And also sometimes a creamy thing, which is not very Italian, by the way, mm. but that seems to also mm. appeal. But if you went for texture and you start looking at the strength of Italian cuisine through texture, and that would be all the different meats that Australians have usually avoided, but not Australians of yesteryear, but Australia, baby boomers onward, it seems to me, have forgotten about the beauty of tongues and oxtail and hearts and livers and kidneys and so on and so forth. Italian cuisine, because it's a peasant cuisine, it couldn't rely on scotch fillet and eye fillet and porterhouse mm-hmm. and so on. It had to go for the lesser cuts, which are treated in intelligent, smart ways. They may be boiled, they may be grilled, they may be pan fried. So you take the classic example of a feast of texture. That would be the northern Italian bolito misto. That's never made its entrance into the Australian mindset. I've done it in the restaurant many times. And it always met with a certain lack of curiosity and almost like sometimes almost with indignation. Well, this is not Italian food, <laughs> but it is. I mean, yes, cotechino so. is you don't throw the pig skin away. You turn it into a sausage combined with a little bit of meat and you boil it and you serve it with appropriate sauces. Same with the tongue. Same with some brisket. They're all the cuts that required different approaches in cooking time and methodology, but once they are combined, they're just a clear, glorious idea of a convivial feast. I mean, nothing like it. The other one that has not appealed, and here you were asking me about what what is appealing, but I say cheesy, tomatoey, pasta, overcooked sometimes, rich. But if we say, what is the strength of Italian cooking in an everyday sense? Well, it would be a beautiful brodo. Mm. You know, chicken soup mm. with pastina. I have never in my 40-odd years of life in Australia ever been to an Italian restaurant which served me either tortellini in brodo or a beautiful chicken stock with pastina and parmesan cheese. <laughs> it would be the easiest thing to prepare. What's the matter with us? Maybe Australians no. believe that's too simple. Mm. Yes. And there goes another huge distortion of our culture here. We go to Italy and we adore the simplicity there. When we come back and we present simplicity to the same person who's been to Rome or Florence or Venice or Naples or Orvieto or whatever, and they say, oh, is this what it's all about? Mm. There is this gap between Mm. the dream of Italy Mm. and the everyday reality in Australia. And just think about all the things we miss out. We miss out on Bacala, for instance. I mean, admittedly, you could say that's really an acquired 
taste, but cod, salted cod or dry cod, was part of the Mediterranean diet for centuries. I mean, people fought wars in the past over the control of that particular fish resource. Here it just disappears altogether. The way we have a suspicion in this country of anything containing anchovies or <laughs> salted sardines. I mean, some people would puke rather than eat an anchovy. I find this childish and extraordinarily immature mm. and disappointing because then you're cutting out a whole selection of categories that make beautiful flavors. Mm. Spaghetti puttanesca is one of my favorite dishes. So I'm a great, yeah, great lover of the anchovy. Mm. There's a great Piemontese dish called bagna cava, which is basically a fondue of butter, garlic, and anchovies. And you sit around this and you dip your veggies raw or partially cooked and little cubes of toasted bread into it. And you have it with copious amount of Barbera. <laughs> and so on. Where are these things gone? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's possibly because it seems to me that the majority of restaurateurs of Italian background in Australia are from the south, and people from the north went into different, by and large, generalizations are limited, obviously. Sure, sure. But it seems that there are very few chefs of northern origin. I guess that's to do with the poverty in Italy, right? It's it's because a lot of the migrants came from the south because that was... Oh, well, the northerners came here too, particularly from my region, extremely poor, but they went into the building industry. Ah. They became concreters and bricklayers and carpenters and all that sort of stuff, and mm. they didn't go into food. Well, Stefano, you migrated to Australia in 1974 and you grew up in Melbourne, studied politics, and you worked in the state public service. But food was always your passion, wasn't it? When did you decide that you wanted to do it full-time, and how did you go about it? Did you do an apprenticeship or training? Or I, I actually did start a little apprenticeship when I was already quite old. <laughs> I was 27, mm-hmm. mature. <laughs> but then during that time, I was involved in a terrible car accident, and I thought... Whilst I was convalescing, I said, "Mm, this is tough. It's a tough gig. Mm. I'll finish uni and enter the public service because my other interest has always been politics. And so I went into politics. And then a few years later, I met my future wife, whose parents were based in Mildura. And when I came here to visit, I was overwhelmed by everything climate, the river, the Aboriginal culture, the culture of the first settlers with all the problem that that entails, the dispossession of the original inhabitants of this area. And the river, the river really took me by surprise because I realized that edible fish in it, I fell in love with the Murray Cod and the Murray Perch because I come from a river town too and I was always fascinated by fish, native freshwater fish. And also my particular place was a, a trading area. So boats, pat-pat motors came up from the port of Venice to deliver goods along the way. So there was a culture of river navigation, these very colourful boats, different from pedal steamers, but both 
And so I was fascinated by all of that. And Donata's father asked me to stay and help with the running of his pub. And I said, well, we'll, we'll give you a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 30 years here. later, here we are, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and so I lived in Mildura, which is in the northwest of Victoria, or the southwest of New South Wales, or to the east of South Australia. It's a blessed corner of the world where the Murray River meets the Darling River, or what's left of it. I live in town. I used to live on the river, but I left the river when the speedboats became and jet skis became too numerous. And I also wanted to move into town in order to walk to work rather than drive the car constantly. And I am enjoying life here because we have a very rich cultural history with the arts. And we now have a cafe culture, which is quite sophisticated. Initially, because... Under the pub, there's this very old cellar, very vast, big old cellar. I said, oh, why can't we set up a wine bar down here with a bit of cheese, mortadella, a bit of prosciutto, a bit of sun-dried tomatoes, as was the fashion then. But the people weren't ready for that. They wanted hot food. Mm. That's another category that 30 years ago was very important. It has declined now, but heat then was important. Things had to be hot. Occasionally, I still get somebody who says, this coffee is not hot enough, or this <laughs> soup is not hot. And it had to be burning hot, if you know what I mean. <laughs> or it um, wasn't cooked. <laughs> I don't know how old you are, and I don't dare ask ever. <laughs> but if you were being around in the 70s and the 80s, people wanted really hot food. Mm, uh, yeah. I'm prepared to, to swear by that. Yeah, the nice and, volcanic cheese on top of everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... They weren't ready for a sharing platter of antipasto and hang around, drink a few bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. It had to be food and cook food. So, in essence, I was dragged into food by public demand, <laughs> not because I wanted to. What kind of things did you serve in those early days of the restaurant? A lot of maricod, um, because then it was possible to get it straight from the river. Eventually, it was made illegal. So the government bought out the few remaining fishermen. And that actually was a good thing. I supported that, though it cost me dearly because I thought, well, this will encourage people to begin farming cod rather than taking it from the wild. Mm -hmm. Every time I took one from the wild, I must say I felt guilty. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I couldn't resist it. Also rationalize it with the fact that I was the only one in town doing it. So... You know, I wasn't doing an enormous amount of damage in proportion. But that was one. And, of course, this place has got an array of of vegetables. I suppose I was one of the first to actually do risotto, but risotto cooked to order, not risotto pre-cooked and all that jazz. Yes. And you've got the full array of vegetables here. So you can do risotto any time, from mushroom to zucchini, from peas to whatever. Again, people seem to also have quite a suspicion, for instance, of the famous Venetian dish of risi e bisi. <laughs> That's too simple, mm. rice and peas, mm. too simple. Mm. Is that all you're giving me? <laughs> it was always a battle to try to find the dishes that would appeal to our mob here. Mm. 
World travel was really only just starting to become more popular in the 1980s, wasn't it? A lot of Australians wouldn't have um, travelled the world at that time. Now, Stefano, back in the 1990s, you wrote a book and hosted a very popular television series, which were both called A Gondola on the Murray, and that shone a light on the Murray River that you were just talking about. How important is the river in the lives of the local community and in making it such a crucial food-producing region? Well, the answer is very simple. There wouldn't be anything here if we didn't have a river. I even would go as far as saying that even Aboriginal communities would have been much reduced back in the days without the rivers. It is the lifeblood of these areas. It is critical to the production of food, but it is also critical to people who live in the metropolis. Because without our rivers, and not just the the Murray, of course, you would not have the ability to grow food to the same extent that we do. It would be a lot harder and complicated. Now, with that said, we have to be keeping always in mind that the over-extraction of water from our rivers is causing equally tremendous problems. And whilst in my next show... I deal with it in a mild manner, in truth, in interviews like this one, I can really say that the situation is dire and we have to change the way we handle our water system. Stefano, when you say the situation is dire with the water situation in the Murray, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean for the local farmers and what does it mean for us here in the city? Well, the big elephant in the room is climate change. And climate change has reduced the rainfall, both in the catchment, catchment meaning in the mountains, and also outside of the catchment. Now, don't look on a year-to-year basis, because last, last year there was a lot of rain. But you have to look at it over the long term. And if you look at it over the last 30 years, we've lost probably 30% of the river capacity. So you've got 30% less water than you would have had in the past over the long term. And this is compounding as we fail to address globally the problem of climate change. Now, we are witnessing this decline in water availability. We have increased the consumption of water for agricultural purposes. And with certain crops, there are water guzzlers like almonds, for instance. Now, this is a double-edged sword because, as I point out in the program, these crops are making regional areas very wealthy and quite interesting places to live in. But they also are a drain on the river systems. So the task for people is to find a balance between extractive industries and climate change and the waterways with their ecological system. Because... The ecological system around the rivers is very delicate and has been embedded there over millennia. And only in the last 100 years, and more rapidly over the last 50 years, we have upset the system dramatically. And so now huge interventions are at work to try to ameliorate this situation. But this is the debate today, the debate that this country should be having way ahead of many other things because it goes to the core of how we want to live 
in this space. Not just us who live out here, but it impacts on the cities as well, and it will eventually. Mm. See, it's a national responsibility to think about it. So, Stefano, it's 20 years since you did your first series, Gondola on the Murray, and you have a new series that's out at the end of May called Australia's Food Bowl. Tell me about the people that you met while you were making this series and some of the challenges that this water shortage and climate change is causing them and how they're dealing with it. Well, obviously, you meet a lot of colourful people. People who live out here, <laughs> I've observed them for the last 30 years, I think they all must be, to a certain extent, risk-takers because who would want to come out here to engage with agriculture when the variables any and can be so catastrophic if things go wrong. You have to be a bit of an adventurous spirit. Mm. So bear that in mind. In that context, a lot of these people are showing creativity and inventiveness to conserve water. And I guess that's one recurrent theme in this series. You look at people who do tiny little things or big things to try to make water go a longer way than it used to. You know, back in the days, people used to just flood irrigate a paddock or a vineyard or something. And that brought up all the salt from underground. Now they use drippers and they use various ways, the way they plow. There's one episode where people deliberately grow some grass and then they crush it to protect the moisture uh, in the soil from arid conditions. You know, there's sort of all kinds of different ways of also changing what is grown here. It all revolves around water conservation. That's the big issue. Could you give us a few more examples of the people that you met in this series and the kind of things they're doing? People who are growing exotic fruits, and I think they are the vanguard for the future. There's a bloke who used to be one of my fishermen. and When he was put out of business, he decided to grow palms for dates. I think that's an, an interesting one. There's a young chap who grows jujubes. They're very good. They contain so much vitamin C and they're really crunchy. It's a fruit that's not very popular around the place, but I think it's got a lot of potential. And these things use less water, presumably. Yeah, they yeah. use yeah, they use mm. they use water. All plants need water, but yeah. it's a matter of identifying things that don't use as much and also provide variety. I mean, I'm not overly critical in the show of the almonds, but they are a monoculture. And whilst they create quite a bit of wealth, a lot of that wealth goes overseas Mm -hmm. to investors from other places. Mm -hmm. And they don't add to variety. I'm interested in these areas using water to produce a range of things. Yeah. At a personal level, you must see a lot of, at times, heartbreak for people when the water is not flowing. Can you tell us what it's like when you're with these people and you know what they've um, been going through and then then the water starts flowing? What do you see? Well, for instance, from 2003 to 2011, we had the longest drought. And you can see people's spirit wilting and then people quitting or abandoning the farms, that's heartbreaking. Others react with admirable stoicism. It's always been like this. It will always be like this. And they cop it on the chin with extraordinary 
fortitude. And then you see that the allocation of water decreases because there's not water in the river and the price of it goes through the roof because you might have to hire some water on a year-to-year basis in order to keep your permanent plants alive. And so you can experience the desperation when you go through these tough times and then conversely, a sense of relief when it rains again and a joyful sense of uh, optimism and the bonhomie returns to the community. Mm. It's, it's tough, but I think that overall we have to question if these ups and downs, this yo-yo, this play between us and nature and whether it is a wise way of conducting business. We are a food bowl and we need to protect it But are there other ways? I guess these are the questions for the future, Mm. all in the context, of course, of climate change. If there weren't climate change, maybe the conversation would be different. Now, of course, living inside the region, running a successful restaurant business for three decades and getting to know these people and making your TV shows, you really get to know these people. How important do you think it is to tell the story of those producers and what they go through to produce our food and get that message to the consumers, to the customers in your restaurant? And if you think that's important, how do you go about doing that? Well, look, my restaurant, I even hate the word restaurant, is just Mm -hmm. a venue that is more like a trattoria. It's not a highfalutin, highly elaborate. It's simple Italian food. And we just use local stuff as much as we can all the time. And we tell people, this is from here. This is from here. This is from here. I'm not sure what people take away, what questionnaire at the end of the night. (laughs) I only hope that since we've been in existence for 30 years and people keep on coming back, they must be telling other people, it's a good experience to go to Mildura and go to this hole in the ground where someone is exhibiting whatever is of the season at the time. I, I guess that I am one of many who is doing this now in regional areas. Looking backward, I could say that Gondola and the restaurant were an inspiration to others. And they said, well, if that Weko can do it up in <laughs> Mildura, 600 kilometers from Melbourne and 1,000 from Sydney, why can't we do it in Albury, Wodonga, or Shepparton, or Dalesford, or wherever? And if you look at the map of Australia today, far and wide, you find a lot of restaurants or eating places or resorts or B&Bs or whatever. They're all centered around this notion that you go to a place and you experience something of that place, whether it's the food, the wine, or, or both of those things. Mm-hmm. It is a nice feeling for people like me or even before me, takes a little from the lake house. When she went to Dalesford, it wasn't 100 kilometers from Melbourne, which is its geographical distance. It would have been 300 kilometers from Melbourne. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. She was one of the first pioneers to go out there. Or George Biron, who was operating in the Western District, they were miles away from the metropolis when they began. And they were voices in the desert. And then I came along and with the TV program that mesmerized people, not so much for the content, but for the fact that it simply was. Who would have imagined? You're always used to looking at Rick Stein or Jamie Oliver or some other 
identity from overseas, Carluccio, but not here. Now, instead of looking backward, we can see how much this idea of location and food and wine and people is all interconnected. And with it, we have created now the possibility right around Australia to stop almost anywhere and have a decent cup of coffee. Mm, you know, that's very you true. Don't take yes. it all for granted. Mm. It wasn't there. No. It wasn't there. Well, Stefano, we've talked about the almonds and some of the fruit that are found in the region. And the region's also home to one of Australia's largest olive oil producers. I'm wondering, with you being Italian-born, how do you see Australian olive oil? Does it compare to Italian or if we oh, want to be... I, I think it's phenomenal. I have no hesitation. But for a variety of reasons, first of all, we don't produce quite enough yet to let it go old. You know, a lot of European oils are being stored in tanks and are blended and God knows. It's, unless you go to a small producer in a very distinct area and you know what you're doing. I mean, olive oil, extra virgin of olive oil, is controlled by very few companies. And their practices are a little bit to say the least, mysterious. Whereas what we produce here is we produce only extra virgin. We don't have equipment for olive oil or other ways of extracting the olive. It's fresh, it's fragrant, and it's reasonably cheap. 20 years ago, you wouldn't go to a supermarket and reach out for a bottle of Australian-made olive oil that was as good, as fragrant, and as fresh as what we have now. It's been an extraordinary achievement. I wonder if one day, like truffles, we'll end up exporting them to Europe. Well, I don't know, but I'd be quite happy for us to be able to produce enough to sustain the Australian demand on a year-to-year basis. My only worry is, again, olives are very good at saving water. They like a little bit of arid conditions. My worry is it's a water cost goes through the roof again, that could really put the olive oil industry in danger and also disease. Remember that a lot of the ancient trees of Puglia have gone to disease. Mm-hmm. We have to be absolutely rigorous without the management of biosecurity because it could just happen in a flash mm-hmm. and it would be a disaster. So uh, Instagrammers know want- going into the olive groves and taking photos of yourself in there. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> stay out of it and let's all be alert. But just to, just to be clear, when I go to the supermarket, I should reach for the Australian extra virgin olive oil. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I have been saying this for the best part of 25 years. I was one of those mad ones that started with little machines to make their own oil, to demonstrate that it was possible, that it tasted amazing. I remember hosting conferences here of dreamers like me, like Maggie Beer at the beginning. She was an olive oil producer as well. And look where she's gone. I didn't Um, know that. We were the dreamers. And then big industry and big investors came along. Thank God they now made it possible for everyone to enjoy fragrant, fresh Australian extra virgin olive oil. There you go. Straight from an Italian. (laughs) Forget the stuff. I mean, I... I just refrain from saying exactly what I think about imported oil. <laughs> All I say to people, if you had the opportunity and to do the research, well, 
do it. Absolutely. Well, there's also a big focus on using Indigenous Australian ingredients these days. And one of the things that we talked about a little before was Murray Cod. Tell our listeners about this particular freshwater fish and its place in Indigenous history of the region and also what it's like to cook with and taste. Well, the taste is not to everyone liking because freshwater fish has a distinct, strong flavour. But I approach every single one, every single fish as I have the last 30 years with reverence. It is a primordial, gorgeous creature and it speaks of that ecological balance that I was talking about before. It's so intimately connected to our Aboriginal ancestors as a source of food, as an inspiration in the making of the world. I mean, for them, Pondi was big maricod that was being hunted, as I understand it. And as it escaped, he left a trail behind, which is the river. Anyway, they mm. can explain better than me. Mm. But the maricod is a sum total of the legend, the ecology, the Aboriginal interpretation of the world. It's all there. It's all in one single fish. It's just extraordinary. And it also is beautiful. I just like the look of it. How do you like to cook it? Well, there are different ways of cooking maricod. You can poach it. I don't grill it. I don't find the grilling suitable. It's usually in the pan and finish in the oven for me. And I add various ingredients because when I was little and we lived on the farm, my mother used to fry freshwater fish, particularly little fishes, in rendered pork fat. Mm. So I just like making my own lardo, which is the, the firm fat on a pig and salted and cured. And then I beat it up into a paste and I melt that paste with sage, flour the cod and cook it in there and finish it off with a bit of white wine in the oven. Mm. I like the combination of pork and, and cod. Mm. Pork as a fat, yes. rather, but equally butter, olive oil. Mm. It, it steams magnificently. And as you know, it, our Chinese friends would do magnificent things with soy and so on. Mm. But that's not my area of expertise. There was a time when our British chefs here in Australia were combining maricot with beef jus. So I think it's quite mm. an exceptional thing because you've got this strong-tasting fish with, mm. with a beef-based reduction. It seems counterintuitive, but it works. Mm. It's very, it works very well. Stefano, where you come from in Italy is not so far from the birthplace of the slow food movement. Are you a proponent of the slow food movement and where do you see it sitting in our lives today? Slow food seems to me to be about preserving food variety and biodiversity. And in a world which goes towards corporatized agriculture, in part that's happening here where I am, and the conservation of cultural values that go, of course, food is a manifestation of cultural values and vice versa. And it's about equity because there's still large chunks of population around the world who are subsistence farmers, believe it or not, and they are suffering from the onslaught of corporate everything, from the chemical industry to the distribution chains. So I guess that slow food can either be 
a middle-class indulgence about discovering rare and beautiful things that are cultivated in an organic and beautiful fashion and have a massive wank about it, or it is a, <laughs> a serious bulk word against the destruction of the environment for corporate reasons. Mm-hmm. So take your pick. <laughs> very, um, very well said. Yeah. Take your pick. To me, the original intention of slow food was to stop McDonald's opening in Rome. Mm, yes. now, that was symbolic. Say, we don't want that in our city squares of, of Italy. We don't want this kind of stuff. And the French did the same. But I think it has grown from being a protest years and years ago against the arrival of fast food, which preys on the palate of people with sugar, essentially, and cheap. It's a statement against that, but symbolically it's a statement against the destruction of the environment to produce things that nobody really needs. But they've become part of the system we live in. Can you just explain just a little bit more about slow food? Because I think that some people do think that it means that it does take a long time or that it is very complex. Now, slow food is the opposite of fast food. And it doesn't mean that you cook it slowly, it takes time, although some dishes obviously would, but all cooking takes time. Slow is the opposite of fast, and fast means all that junk food that is now being spread right around the world. And to support that fast food, you need very corporate structures, which are involved in the production of huge amount of corn, for instance, from which sugar is derived that goes now into everything, particularly in the United States. So slow food is the defense of the culture of a place. For instance, in Australia, we cannot make cheese with raw milk. So we can't make Parmesan cheese. Why? Who has decided that that is the case? When in Italy, Parmesan cheese has been made for centuries and nobody dies. Then if you go to Italy and you've got the areas where Parmigiano-Reggiano comes from, well, you have to defend with tooth and nail that particular culture. You have to save the integrity of those paddocks from which the grass comes to feed those cows and the methodology and the market, etc., etc., etc. It's very easy to trash those things with a corporate approach. Very easy. So it's about being against the fast, the crap, and it's about defending the integrity of particular regions and particular products before they disappear under the onslaught of commercialized vast-scale agriculture. If you let the industry go ballistic, you end up with one type of orange, one type of almond, rather than have variety. Do you know how many varieties of citrus there are? But we probably cultivate two or three. Where are the other varieties? And why is it that the public doesn't know about them? Because they're not grown, they're not marketed. Because it doesn't sit well with corporate approaches. That's what slow food is about. Mm. It's about community. It's about defending the right of small farmers to do what they've done for centuries without being dislodged from their land by greedy operators. That's what slow food is about. Mm, It's, It's nothing complicated. 
Well, thanks so much, Stefano, for sharing with us your knowledge and passion for the people and the land that you now call home. We've really loved hearing from you. Yes, thank you. And thank you for the picture you paint of your community and how deeply connected they are to the land and the waterways of that region that sustains us. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much. It is a complex picture because we need the food, we need to grow it, and it impacts on our environment. We have to find a solution within that tension. Well, thank you for that, Stefano. Listeners, we'll post links to Stefano's new series in our show notes and also on our website, extravirginfoodandtravel.com. And hopefully we can persuade Stefano to share a recipe with us and we'll pop it up on the website as well. That would be great (laughs) if we could twist your arm. (laughs) Yes, sure, sure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ciao, Stefano. Ciao. And that's it for this episode. Wherever you are in the world, thanks for listening. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. 